Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Pronman, back to get our Friday prospect series of the Athletic Hockey Show going again. We've had a few weeks off here as we've kind of recharged and let uh, things settle down just a little bit from the uh, wild July and, and early August that we've had in the NHL. It's starting to pick up a little bit. We've got a little bit uh, of news on the offer sheet front that we're going to get to in a minute. Camps are getting going. Europe is getting started again. Pretty soon before you know it, it's going to be prospect tournament season. So we are back with you for the next few weeks to get you set for the start of the prospect season. Corey, how you doing? Feeling refreshed? I'm doing well. Yeah, I mean, as, as much as as you can be. Uh, we just I got back from Europe, what like I think like two weeks ago. Um, and yeah, it's been a little bit quieter here, but we've got a lot of good stuff going up at the website right now uh, with the org rankings going up uh, this week. And kind of as you said, um, as we're recording, the KHL season is getting going. So um, and like there was a U24 Nations over the over the weekend. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, uh, for, for my end, uh, the hockey season is off and running again. And those org rankings will be kind of the primary focus of today's show. We're going to get to uh, all of those here, but but we are going to get to a couple of the news items first. And that starts obviously with the Montreal-Carolina saga continuing uh, two years after Montreal offer sheeted Sebastian Ajo, an offer that Carolina obviously matched. Carolina kind of, I guess we're going to call it strikes back, and they offer sheet Yasperi Kotkani. I mean, obviously not the caliber of of player established as of now that that Aho was at the time. The offer is one year, six point one million dollars. Got pretty big implications on the qualifying offer if Montreal matches. But what's kind of your overall take on this? Is this a good idea for Carolina? I, I mean, I think there's multiple components. You know, I think. No one, Carolina will likely believe this, and and most NHL people around the league believe that Kakaniemi is a very good young player. Doesn't mean he's been very good in the National Hockey League, but if if he was put on the the trade market right now, uh, not with a six million dollar cap hit attached to his name, but just his regular RFA uh, status, there would have been a lot of interest, and it, I think you would have gotten you know put him on the on the free market. Uh, you know, well, leading to the draft, you could have gotten a bit first for him, I think, fairly easily. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's not a third overall, but I think, I think there would be significant interest on a guy that a lot of people think could be, uh, you know, a second line forward, maybe a good, you know, top six forward of the National Hockey League, uh, at his peak because he's a big center with great offensive instincts and skills and he's competitive enough. The skating still an issue as it was when he was a teenager. Uh, but but the, there is interest in this player, and I think it's reasonable to think he's going to be a good player, an important player for whatever team he's a part of down the line. But that's not really where the debate is. The debate is that he got offered a $6 million cap hit on a one-year contract, which is his second contract, which is an important uh, qualifier. You know, this would be if you, you know, did a bridge deal for one year uh, on a player without getting his RB years, without getting any UFA years. Uh, you know, you kind of look at some of the you know the more prominent players who've gotten bridge deals. Zach Rowenski, I think, was at five for multiple years. Brock Besser was like about five point eight, I think, for multiple years. And Kakaniemi has not proven close to what they did uh, at the same age. And we all know that this is an overpay and that there is an element of you know revenge in this from what Carolina is doing. They didn't exactly hide it um, from the things they've published online uh, shortly after they made the offer sheet. Um, so I think it's a mixture of trying to get a good player and and the obvious uh, undertones of the move. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, you look at how this can shake out. I mean, the fact that it's a one-year deal, obviously the, the qualifying offer that Montreal would would have to uh, submit to Kotkaniemi a year from now would be really high. But that also still applies to Carolina. So if you're Carolina and you're offering this deal, you, you really have to be prepared to extend prior to Kakaniemi kind of reaching restricted free agency again next summer. And, and you know, that doesn't seem, you know, unreasonable or implausible that they could do that. But it does put you in a situation where if you're doing this, you're probably doing it knowing, okay, now I'm going to extend this guy for, you know, the number is probably more like four, four and a half or something like that for, for, for a deal this offseason, I would think. Yeah, it's why I think it's probably a combination of they actually do like the player, yeah. even though they know what they are significantly overpaying for him. Um, in part, as kind of this play to kind of you know as kind of, as kind of payback for what happened with Sebastian Ajo, and kind of like you said, you know, especially in a flat cap world, this will have implications if he becomes a Carolina Hurricane. Now you're talking about probably not resigning Trocheck. You know, may not be able to sign Nino Niederreiter. It'll have implications on Martin Neches's RFA deal and, and how much you can squeeze him in for. Uh, now, now that they have Sveshnikov taken care of, they kind of have some certainty there. But it's uh, you know, it will definitely have implications. You know, you're talking about three really important players for that team that you're going to have to make some hard decisions on. And so you need Kakanyemi. You have to believe he's going to be a good player for your team if you're going to do that. And I can't believe, even though Tom Dundon seems to, you know, do some interesting things. I don't think he's like an unintelligent person who would want to, you know, you know, completely, you know, destroy his team over trying to get a little bit of payback. I think they, I hope they believe they think they're getting a good player. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned Trocek. So 28 year old player played about 18 minutes a night last year. That roughly translates to kind of second line center minutes. He was really close to a point per game player for them in Carolina last year, but he'll be 29 a year from now. Kakaniemi, uh, I don't know exactly. He's 21, I believe, right now. Will be 22 next year. You've got him projected as a likely 2C or, or if, if he's able to stay at center, at least in the organizational rankings um, yep. where they came out this week. So I guess my question is, can he be that a year from now? Or is that projection more like four years from now? I mean, I'm sure they hope he can be that a year from now. Or <laughs> sure Montreal hopes that, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't done it yet. You know, I, I really believe in the player. I think he's a really good player. I don't think he's a great player. He's a really good player, though. And for the reasons I kind of said earlier, like, I think he could be that. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if a year from now he's a legitimate 2C. Like, it's perfectly reasonable. I don't know if it's all completely realistic, but I think within the next one to three years, you're kind of hoping he develops into that. So here's my question to you. You're Mark Bergevin. Are you matching this? So here's the tough part for Montreal is you know it's an overpay and you know how much it's going to screw up your salary cap. Um, but you kind of look at this team now. Let's say you lost Philip Deneau in the offseason and now you're going to lose Cock and Niemi. You look at this team's depth chart now and it's like it's just Nick Suzuki and like kind of a barren wasteland there at center right afterwards. And I really like Ryan Palick. He had an excellent second Pro season after his first pro season didn't really go that well. I think he could be a third line center in the National Hockey League. I don't know if he could be a second line center in the National Hockey League. And if Deneau is gone and Kakaniemi is gone, now you're kind of looking at Ryan Paling and saying, hey, you need to be a whole lot better than I thought you really needed to be next season. Because we got we don't really have much after you. And Nick Suzuki, you're gonna have to play like twenty five minutes a night right now. Uh, and you probably have to go get somebody externally too and pay assets to do that as well. Maybe some of the assets you get from Carolina. 
That is, if you want to try and be competitive again next season, which I presume the a Stanley Cup finalist team, at least I think, hopes they will be somewhat competitive. Uh, so they're a really unique bind, but just my instinct is not to match just because I, I just don't see uh, – I, I just because especially in a flat cap era, I just don't see the player – living up to kind of that Rowenski Besser level kind of player at this stage that you'd have to pay that kind of value and then pay it again in subsequent seasons. Or if you don't want to do the match qualifying offer, you just walk in free agency. Uh, I think that creates all kinds of complications for you. And I think real, I think Montreal had a great you know, playoff run. Kudos to them for what it was. But I think realistically, look at that roster. It's not a contender. It wasn't a contender last season. And, and they're losing Shea Weber. Yeah, they're losing Shea Weber. Carey Price is just going to keep getting older. And I think realistically, if you're a manager, what's best for the franchise is to take the, take the compensation. But these things are much more complicated. And I, you know, who knows whether ownership would actually sign off on that or not. I agree with you. I, I would not match this if I was Montreal. You talked earlier about what would Kakaniemi fetch on the trademark. And I think what you said was a mid-first. Are we sure Carolina's not going to be a mid for? I mean, maybe it's a later mid first, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they lost Ducky Hamilton, uh, you know, the, and uh, it's and you know they and they've tried to make some you know add some pieces there you know through the offseason the best they can. Maybe they presume you know Feshikov and Net just continue to progress. Yep. Maybe some of these prospects that they have, you know, their system is rated rather highly by, by me right now. Uh, you know. I don't know how many of those guys are definitely going to step in. Maybe Jack Drury, maybe Ryan Suzuki. Seth Jarvis could progress. I mean, yeah, I presume he needs one more year in junior, yeah. but it's always possible that he could step in right away. All these things are possible. Dominic Bach too, um, but but realistically, yeah, I, I think you look at this team and they might take a step back this season. They might not, but they. But I, I think they're a playoff I, team. But like maybe like a maybe maybe they're not one that, that really gets you yeah, deep into the twenties or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, I think me re- looking at this roster, thinking the odds on that is a five to eight seed. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and I think Cockney would fetch a little bit higher than that in the open trade market, but I'm not sure it's substantial. So I think that's a completely fair argument. Yeah, and, and so once you do that, at that point, if you're Montreal, you get to make a decision, and that decision is: is this kind of going to be a okay? We made our run last year. Now let's take a step and, and set this thing up to be more sustainable. In that case, either you hold on to that first and third round pick and you make them, or you can trade them for a really young player, a, a prospect, for example, or you can say, nope, we're going to try to push in. We're going to disregard the fact, the, the kind of miraculous nature of our run, the fact that we don't have our, I, I would say, you know, second best player and captain and Shea Weber um, coming back this year. And, and we're going to throw that to the wind and we're going to try it anyway. It, you know, they could do it if they want to. You know, hockey is a competitive sport and you can never fault someone for trying to win. It's not what I would do, but, but you can make that call. But I'm yeah. taking the first and third round pick and going from there. Yeah, no, it's a difficult decision. Basically, you know, to your if you're a manager, if you're an owner, kind of like saying to your team, hey, we just don't think we want to keep the player. We're going to take the futures. We don't really have a plan to replace the player right now. Maybe they do. Maybe there's a trade that they can work out. But uh, it's a very difficult, complex decision. Especially with a third overall pick player. Like, that's the tough part, too. From, from three years ago, yes. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. it's it's almost like admitting that you got it, got it wrong a little bit, too, which takes a lot of humility, but I think is an admirable trait in a manager. Yep. Um, and like I said, I, I I told you where I lean. I lean to not matching, but I'm not going to pretend like it's an easy decision. This is a very complex matter with a lot, a lot of elements to it. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see what Montreal does. 
It is, and I'm sure that heartache is very much by design from from Carolina's end. Of oh, things, oh, so. no, for sure. They <laughs> did they did an offer sheet, and I think uh, McIndoe with us kind of wrote wrote really well that uh, it might have been McIndoe, it might be mistaken, but they, they this was the kind of offer sheet that's the one that you think of by design is that yeah. it puts stress on. It's not the one that you look at and like, yeah, duh, I'll match. Right. Uh, it's the one that's going to keep some a lot of people in Montreal up very late at night uh, going into the going into the decision. Yep. All right. Um, moving from there, I, I just want to touch really quick on Canada's U18 and U20 camp. Um, you know, obviously still tough to travel, so I don't I don't believe you were there at that. But any any rumblings coming out of that camp or anything you want to share? Who anyone stand out or anything notable? Yeah, like you said, I wasn't at the camp. I was at the Holinka while that was uh, going on. Uh, the Holinka in the, in the World Junior Summer Showcase. I was I was that was my uh, travel schedule. Okay. Um, but I did talk to a lot of scouts who were there. It was a unique camp by Canada. They had the U18, so the, they're not the Holinka team, but just basically the age group, the O4 age group, having a camp. They had the uh, U20 camp, which was a World Junior camp, and then they combined the U18 and the U20 teams into uh, four different combined teams uh, for one day. So it was a very interesting camp. I'm uh, just talking quickly to some of the scouts who are at, the, at that, some of the drafted guys they wanted, they highlighted to me that that stood out. Uh, Ducks fans will like that both Mason McTavish and Olin Zellweger both got really good grades, particularly McTavish, not surprisingly for a third overall pick. But it was interesting to hear that Zellweger, very young player, young 3 a couple days away from being eligible for the 22 draft. Um, you know, when a guy goes into a hockey camp under 20 camp uh, as an 18 year old, you're kind of hoping he just holds his own. Um, but they told me there, you know, he looked like he belonged and you know, maybe he has an outside chance to actually make the team. Uh, you know, we'll see how the season goes. But I thought that was rather interesting. Uh, the Columbus pick, Cole Sillinger, I heard pretty good things about. I think he had a four goal game in one of those days. I think people were saying positive things about him, positive things about the Carolina pick you just mentioned before, Seth Jarvis. Uh, Ridley Gregg continues to get positive reviews from scouts I've talked to, uh, not just from this tournament, but over like the last year or so. It just it seems like his game continues to elevate, and and people are saying a lot of positive things about him um, around the game as a highly skilled and physical centerman. Uh, Justin Surdeff, the Florida pick, looked like he had an excellent camp uh, from from all accounts, and a guy who looks like he's got a really decent chance to to make the World Junior team. Uh, and I think those were the main highlights. I might be forgetting somebody, but I remember those were the ones that were high, were highlighted particularly to me. And on the kind of the, the other, the not, the not so good side in terms of the players, you know, people want to see a little, a little more from. I, I said something nice about the Columbus pick, uh, Cole Sillinger. Unfortunately, they said Ken Johnson wasn't as impressive there, the fifth overall pick. Uh, he was playing center there. He played wing all season at, uh, in Michigan. I'm not sure if the positional adjustment was was an issue or not. Again, I wasn't there, um, but I know he was a guy that some scouts said just didn't really wasn't really consistent in terms of how he was creating offense. Um, and interesting enough, one of the guys that got criticized by almost everybody I talked to was Shane Wright, um, as somebody who just didn't really do a whole lot. You know, I fully expect he'll be on the team. I fully expect by the time he goes to the World Junior Camp, he'll have like 30 goals in the Ontario League. Um, but uh, I thought that was interesting regardless. Um, and a uh, player who didn't play a lot last year too. Like that's notable other than yeah, the one tournament. Oh yeah. I'm not trying to like drop drastic conclusions, but it's, it was always sure. interesting when you have like these, this collection of talent and you know, who, who rises to the occasion, who doesn't like Lafreniere, for example, had like a very good under 20 camp. 
uh, in the summer uh, when going into his World Junior process. Uh, so yeah, I said it's just interesting. You know, he obviously was amazing at the U eighteen Worlds, and I expect he'll be yeah. a key player for uh, the World Junior team when when it comes around to the actual tournament. And then quickly on the under eighteen level, uh, you know, less you know a lot of more unknowns here, particularly on the Ontario front, where people are just trying to learn about the player. Uh, the one Ontario guy that I keep hearing positive things about from scouts uh, that's not Shane Wright is Spencer Sova, the defenseman from Erie. A uh, really good skater, has good offensive abilities. Uh, on the pro, the little I know about the next Ontario age group, and I cannot emphasize how little I know about <laughs> them right now. Um, it's probably between him and, and Danny Jilkin from Guelph as the next best Ontario player right now. You mentioned, I want to go back to the U20s really quick, Ridley Gregg. I mean, he he was the third of the three Ottawa picks in that uh, last draft and or the 2020 draft, I should say. Um, after Tim Stutzla, Jake Sanderson, if, if Ridley Gregg really does pop here and, and cements himself as a riser, you're talking about such an impactful draft class for one organization. You know, Stutzla obviously uh, to make the NHL last year and, and, and produce a little bit the way he did. Sanderson to me was the best player at that World Junior Summer Showcase we were at a few weeks back, and now for for Greg to kind of be showing and, and, and rising a little bit, what kind of potential does that class have to kind of really change the organization at Ottawa? Yeah, no, it, it's a, it looks like a very important draft class. Like I, said, I think Greg is going to be, I don't know if he'll be, I don't think he'll be in Ottawa, but I think you can see him in Ottawa in about a year from now. I think he'll be a top three-line center for Canada at the World Juniors um, just because he, and I think realistically he's a third-line center on a good team. I think you're going to look at that Ottawa team and, you know, with a guy like Josh Norris there, and, you know, we'll see whether Tim Stutzel stays on the wing or moves back to center. I think on a contender, he's probably a 3C Really good skill, really physical, competitive skating, just okay. But I think he's a, he'd be a really important player and, and complement you know, those higher echelon guys like Stutzel and, and Sanderson. Um, provide some of that grit that you know they clearly have been targeting with guys like Sanderson and, and Tyler Boucher, although I think he has more ability than a guy like Tyler Boucher in terms of just his pure puck game and offense. And, and even like you look at the second round of that draft, like Igor Sokolov, I think you could have argued he was like their best forward in Belleville this season. Uh, Roby Arventi didn't have a good World Juniors, but his he was a really good scorer in Liga for an 18-year-old. They had a lot of points, actually, on a good team. And, and Tyler Clevin you know, made their World Junior team uh, when they won gold last year. Uh, had Took some really positive steps from North Dakota. I think you can conceivably see all six of those guys play NHL games. And whether all six of them are full-time legitimate players, time will tell. But but that draft class definitely looks extremely important for them. If you if in five years from now they're a good team, it's probably because that draft class paid huge dividends. Okay, now I want to get into the under twenty three organizational rankings, Corey. Always one of the most fun and I, I think really most important stories at this time of year, right before things get going. I, I like the way that you do it as an under twenty three rather than a prospect review because I think it separates out the players who or sorry, not separates out. It includes the players. Um, who are still young and who are still going to be kind of long-term impact players in this league that sometimes can get filtered out of a pure prospect ranking because they were just so good they got to the NHL early. And so I like that you include that. I think it, it does a good job giving a snapshot into really what the cream of the crop in the NHL is going to look like five, six, seven years down the line. Um, and, and so I, we can really kind of dive right into your process, I guess, for how you put something like this together, what goes into it, um, because I, it's a 
it's a Herculean task to rank really every prospect in the league. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm not going to try and pretend that I've seen every minute of every player across all leagues. That's not possible. Um, the process really kind of builds on itself. You, know, you see all of these guys over long periods of time. The, the, the org ranking, the U23, is meant to span a five-year window, the 2017 through the 2021 draft, and then obviously next year will be 2018 through 2022, so on and so forth. And you, you, I obviously watched a ton of hockey at all levels, um, particularly um, for this series. Uh, when I start going through the team's reserve list, you start highlighting guys that you feel uncomfortable with. That you're like, okay, I need to see, you know, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. I need to, I need to watch, go back and watch some of him. And you kind of, kind of do that over and over again uh, with the various teams. You build on what you watched all season. You talk to some scouts to maybe fill in some blanks on some guys you might feel uncomfortable with. Uh, you know, to aid maybe in the tool grading process, or to, you know, to see you to see whether you're too high or too low on a guy. And, and just, you know, it's, it's definitely a culmination of work that you do all season, but also in past seasons, you know, you mentioned like the NHL players. I have, I've had this discussion with say like New York Rangers fans on say Capocacco and Alexi Lafreniere who haven't had amazing NHL, uh, performances to date. And you have to kind of go back to what you've seen to them in prior years where they had chances to touch the puck more and, and you know, the kind of level of skill they have. And you have to balance it, obviously, based on what you've seen in the National Hockey League. Uh, but that's how the entire process comes together. It's a real holistic endeavor. What's more valuable, a system that has a lot of middle-of-the-lineup contributors or one that has a couple high lineup, maybe even kind of all-star caliber contributors and not much depth? I mean, definitely the latter. I mean, just because there's so much harder to acquire. I try my best to balance it. You know, I, I you know, if you kind of look through – the rankings. I hope to everybody who re- who read a decent chunk of them, it makes sense. You're not like reading that and wondering why on earth is this team like 23, but this team is 11 or something like that. I hope it's it stood out that that there are certain players that have definitely more value. But if you have a lot of guys, I know you cover say the Detroit system for example. They don't really have yet uh, like a Miro Haskinen kind of player who has broken through and become a, a true NHL level young star, but they've got like 15 guys that you think are really good young players. And there is a balance to that. You know, how many of those guys would you take before you add up to a Miro Heiskin? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't really have the answer. I kind of like a, some, I have like a kind of a mathematical equation in my head. I, I guesstimate it with, but that's kind of the way I try to balance that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and then I guess kind of my last thing is how much does the NHL uh, resume part factor into that? Like, for example, if you have a prospect who maybe is is projecting to be maybe not a Miro Heiskanen, but but a, a you know top pair defenseman, first line forward versus a guy who's in the NHL and maybe they're a high second line forward or good number three defenseman, do those factor in about the same or how much does having proved it matter? It's a huge variable, I think, because it's the ultimate hurdle to be able to perform at a high level in the National Hockey League. And typically at the age levels that I'm using – where, you know, we're talking about 18, 19, and typically if they're in the NHL, 21, 21, 22 year olds, if they're a top four defenseman by that age, if they're a legitimate top six, four by that age, it's pretty rare, not uncommon. Like it happens every now and then, but um, it's, I, I phrase that wrong. It's like, it's, you know, it's pretty rare, but not, but not impossible. Uh, 
for a guy to have topped out by then. But typically, they have more to give. You know, if they're a top six forward when they're 21, there's usually a pretty decent chance they could be a top line forward or like a true star caliber forward. Uh, so it's all, but it's definitely a balance of everything of what you know about the toolkits and their past performances. Uh, but the NHL performance is a huge variable. If a player excels in the National Hockey League, they skyrocket up my list. Much as I'm sure uh, there's some fan bases out there that would love me to sit here and, and grill you on each team for for 15 minutes each and, and their yeah, ranking. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And that's was that. <laughs> and that was you know we we typically have done this over like a month, and yeah. this year it was a week, and most of that was due to the abbreviated off season. Uh, you know, we the draft was over in July. You can't put this series together until the draft is over. Uh, so it's just a matter of having to get – and we have, you know, the camp. I want to get it out before camp start. Uh, so it's a balance of that. We want to see how it – you know, a new, we kind of use these new circumstances to see how it would do. But, like, it's almost been impossible for me to address all the reader concerns and questions. You know, just because we have 32 team files all going up in one week. Every there's you know every team file has a bunch of comments and then you know social media has a bunch of questions and comments. There's literally no way for me to address all your concerns. So I really do apologize if I've ignored almost all of you. And it's not because I don't care, but it's just it's just been a lot. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to have time to grill you on all of them either. But I did want to at least get you to touch on the top five or six systems if we have time for that. Um, and and obviously that starts at the very top with your number one team, Buffalo. Yeah, and Buffalo is one that I'm sure some people will roll in their eyes when they saw that. And I think it's an interesting one when you talk about what you said before and you're trying to, you know, ideally this series forecasts the future. Like, I think Ottawa is going to be a really, you know, be not, I'm not going to be a really good team, but I think they will be a much better team in five years from now. I think Carolina will has a lot of talent to maybe not be a contender. You know, contender is a really high bar, but they can be a good team, I think, for a while. I think LA, the Rangers... You know, they have the, the assets there to be, to be, you know, good long-term teams. New Jersey has some of the assets there to be a, to become much better than they are right now. Buffalo's in a really tough spot because it almost feels like they're starting to rebuild all over again right now. Uh, and rebuilds take a very long time. You know, they, they've tried to rebuild several times and it didn't work. And it looked like it was kind of coming. Like, I know they were terrible last season, but like, I think... From I know they it wouldn't have been the real playoffs, but I think they would have been like a, what, like a point or two away from qualifying for that play-in series last spring. All of a sudden, they they get one more point. They're in the play-in series. If they win, they're in the playoffs. All of a sudden, it looks like things are working. And but then they didn't. There was a management change. The team took a you know a massive tailspin, and we're here right now. Our Sam Reinhardt's gone. Rasmus Ristolainen is gone, and Jack Eichel. We presume at some point in the future will be gone. Can't tell you where or when that's happening. Uh, I'm sure many people want to know the answer to those questions. Uh, well, that to me is one of the most interesting things about their ranking is that it's before they get the first round pick that they got for Sam Reinhardt yeah. uh, factored in. It's before anything that they're going to get in return for Jack Eichel factored in. It's really right. interesting. Well, they, Devin Levi is part of it, and he was part of the return for Reinhardt. But yes, oh, the, that's the, true. The, the first round pick they got is not in there. Uh, at I put the number one with the full recognition that there is still a lot of work to do there become just a decent NHL team, one who could contend to make a playoff spot, and that there is a lot more futures they're going to need to add. There's a lot of development work ahead that's going to need to go well for some of their young players. But if you look at this group of players, the U23 players, you know, Rasmus Dahlin and Owen Power are two absolute 
you know, elite young defensemen. Those are players, you put them on the open market, right now you would get incredible offers, even though Darlene didn't have a great year last year. He took a step back. If you look at his teenage years, historically it's among like the very best players to ever play in the National Hockey League on defense. He has a tr- tremendous skill. Owen Power obviously projects as that as a number one defenseman who is an elite two-way guy. Then you get past them. Dylan Cousins, I think it's easy to forget how good he was in junior, how good he was in the world juniors. Didn't have his great first year in the NHL, but there's a ton of talent there. Casey Middlestad bounced back well. He had around a half point a game this year. You go through, you know, Henry Yokoharu. They had a top 10 pick in Jack Quinn the other other year. He wouldn't go top 10. I think he redid that draft, but he wouldn't go, you know, that much lower. Still a really good player. Uh, Ryan Johnson looked promising at the world juniors and in Minnesota this season. Uh, Matias Samuelson, Ukapekalukanen, there's those are solid prospects. There's there's a lot there to become important players of the next good Buffalo team. But again, with full recognition, there's still a lot more work left there to do in Buffalo. We touched a little bit on a few of the guys from from your number two team. That's Ottawa. Obviously, you're looking at Tim Stutzla and Jake Sanderson as as major headliners here. But overall, what's the future looking like in Ottawa? Well, you met you, those two are huge components. Brady Kachuk's a huge, huge component there as well. And, and part of why they took this leap is that, you know, Josh Norris just continues to elevate as a young player. You know, when I saw him, when they got him from Michigan, I thought third liner, second line at best, wasn't like over the moon about him. And now, like, he goes, turns pro that first year in Belleville, he was awesome. You're like, oh, they might get like a, legitimate top six forward, maybe even like a kind of a so-so first liner here. Now you watch him in Ottawa this year, like, oh, he might be a really good first liner actually. And, you know, maybe whether it's at center or not, you know, you know, we'll see, you know, how they want to deploy all these young assets they have. Cause now they have also Shane Pinto coming. who's another guy who I underrate as a prospect when I watched him in Lincoln, Tri-City did not see uh, the guy he's becoming, which is another guy who seems on the fast track becoming a top six four in the National Hockey League down the middle. Uh, just a tremendous year in North Dakota. Uh, it looks like a really good two-way center. Skating just okay, but everything else there looks really positive. Uh, you have those guys. You add them into some of the guys I mentioned before, like Greg, like Igor Sokolov, uh, like Alex Formanton and Eric, and Eric Brandstrom and Jacob Bernard Docker. Uh, this is a really exciting group of young players. Not all of them will work out. That's just the nature of prospects. But when you have so many of them that have potential – your odds just increase, and, and that's kind of what they've been doing there, accumulating futures. And as long as Stutzla and, and Kachuk and Sanderson hit and Norris hits, which, you know, they're further along than a guy than a team like Buffalo in this regard because where you're starting yeah. to see some of these these guys start to hit. Power hasn't played yet in the NHL. Uh, you can kind of see a timeline where three, four, five years from now, they can start to become, you know, a much better NHL team. Fascinating too to me that that Ottawa is able to ascend to this kind of ranking in spite of having I don't even know if I could say divisive I might just say dicey like reaction to it to their top ten pick that they got this year in Boucher as they yeah. did like usually if you have a top ten pick that people are kind of iffy on that can hurt you in a ranking like this but they they almost by how well they drafted the previous few years overcome that here 
Yeah, you know, you know, full transparency. Like I said, I didn't like some of their other picks. But, you know, sometimes I haven't like you know, it's not just Ottawa. Like there are other teams who picks I don't of like, and sometimes it ages well, sometimes it doesn't. You know, I didn't like the Gabriel Gagne pick. I didn't it also that didn't age well for them. But I didn't like you know the Shane Pinto pick, and it's aged well for them. So you know, it's a balance of things. I didn't like Tyler Boucher. I think he's a good player. He's on their list. I think he's going to be an NHL player. Just wouldn't take him at ten. Uh, you know, I think, and, and I've heard some of their comments they've said since then where they've kind of discussed what the kind of team they're looking for. And I think realistically, like just being really realistic in my opinion, maybe their realism is different than mine, that if you are hoping that Tyler Boucher can become a middle six NHL forward who is extremely tough to play against, one of the most physical players on the ice every night in terms of how he impacts a game, um, you're hoping for some offense, maybe not a lot. You know, I have him as a bottom six forward. Conceivable, then he could become a middle six forward. You know, if that's what you, if you hope that's what he is, and just a pain in the ass to play against every night, then I think you can call that a success story. If you're hoping that Tyler Boucher is going to become the tenth best player in that draft, uh, I would say the odds of that are long, not impossible, but but long. Uh, but I can see where he blends in with this group, where you have you know guys with speed and skill and in, in, in different aspects of, of the system, and he kind of is one another piece that they really felt they wanted. Um, I can see the logic there. And they are at the point of this rebuild and, and in their kind of assembly phase where I do think it's okay for them to start looking for specific fits and puzzle pieces there. Like, I don't think they need to be worrying as much as a team like Buffalo or Detroit about the best player available because now, they are a little yeah. closer. Yeah, and I'm fine with that to an extent. I think the best player available tends to get overblown a little bit because the yep. gap between players at a certain point in the draft tend to be rather small. We tend to overrate there between like 18 and 20. That said, that point is not 10. At 10, I still yeah. think you got to be trying to get the most value possible. That is fair. All right, moving into the number three team. And this is a team you talked about having kind of sheer numbers overcoming a couple of uh, elite prospects. Uh, Carolina is the definition of that. Yeah, they've had something like 30 picks in the last three years. But even though they've had all those picks and the depth of them of the depth of their system is a huge reason why they're rated so highly. And, uh, it, you know, the a huge reason why they are also rated so highly is because of Andrei Sveshnikov and Martin Neches. Particularly Sveshnikov, who I think is going to be one of the very best wingers in the National Hockey League. And if he's not already, he will be shortly. I think this guy has every element you want in a, in a modern NHL, uh, you know, top forward. Big, good skater, tremendous skill, great hockey sense. He can shoot it. He's physical. Uh, I, I think he's kind of got everything. Martin Neches has pro- uh, progressed really positively. Uh, Seth Jarvis has progressed really positively. He was great this year versus professionals in the first half when he was up with the American League. Not the first half, but the first half of his like, abbreviated season uh, when, he, when he was up in the American League. Uh, and then, yes, after that, it's just a very long list of guys from all the draft picks, and some of whom are not going to work out. It's just the nature of having that many guys who are kind of on the periphery. Uh, but you, know, you kind of hope, I think, that what their strategy is clearly is they're trying to play the odds and that they know that you know third, fourth, fifth, sixth round picks have only so high a probability of success. And if you just get enough of them, <laughs> you know, eventually one of them will be a success. Uh you know, it's definitely an interesting strategy, and I think there's going to come a point where they're not going to be able to sign a lot of these guys, and there's going to be some prospects that may not actually be NHL players but are good enough to get contracts, usually from most teams that just won't get a contract from Carolina. 
but for now, they have a very deep system of guys who have at least some potential to play in the National Hockey League. Yeah, you're right. It's really a mix of the elite guys and, and, and the depth, and, and I completely just had spaced on the existence of Andrei Svechnikov for a minute there. So uh, apologies to Andrei, and congratulations to Andrei, really, because he, he's going to have a very nice future for himself uh, ahead of him uh, now at this phase. Uh, moving on to number four, that's the New York Rangers. Obviously, they've had a couple of number one and number two overall picks in the last few years with Lafreniere and Kako. But but another team that does have some really nice depth, and you look at a player like Nils Lundqvist, Braden Schneider, like this is rounding out to be, I mean, especially on the blue line, a really interesting young team. Yeah, you have Schneider, who was excellent this season. Lundqvist, who was excellent this season. Zach Jones, who was excellent this season, both in UMass and then at World Championships, did play well, I thought, in his little few NHL games. You have Keontre Miller, too, who was excellent, to go with, with Kako and, and, La, and Lafreniere, um, and now Brennan Othman and Vitaly Kravtsov. You know, Kako and Lafreniere have not had the big years yet in the NHL, but you, just kind of like what I said at the beginning, it you know, you think it's going to come. I don't know exactly how good they're going to be next year or the year after, but I still think both of these guys have so much ability uh, in terms of their skill, hockey sense, and competitiveness, even though neither of them are amazing skaters, uh, that you think they're going to become really, really good forwards in the National Hockey League, whether it's like you know, first-line caliber guys. You know, I think both have definitely potential to do that. And then you kind of, like I said, you look through the depth of the system. It's a really deep system, particularly at defense, but there are some good forwards coming too, particularly on, on the wing. And Philip Hedl still qualifies for this, um, who has, I think, looked really promising in the NHL. He hasn't taken a huge step into becoming a top, top player. I don't know if he ever is going to, to be quite honest, but I still think you have a guy there with tremendous speed and skill who may not do everything on the ice that you want, but he has enough there, I think, to be a good top six forward. I think if you had asked me a week ago prior to seeing any of these who the number one team was going to be, my guess would have been the team who slots in at number five, and that's Los Angeles. Obviously, Quinton Byfield, Alex Turcotte, now Brent Clark in the fold there. Um, uh, number five is a great ranking, so it's it's no slight to LA. Um, where do kind of they fall behind some of these top four teams? Because they, they do have such depth at the center position and, and, and now starting to, to get, you know, a high end D man in there. Where do they kind of fall behind these other four? Yeah. Their prospect depth is a murderer's row. If we, if this wasn't a U23 mm. ranking, if this was a farm system ranking, they're probably number one and number one with the bullet, but it's not. And so many of these guys that they have other than Tobias Bjornfoot and Mikey Anderson and Gabriel Velarde, uh, and to the degree, Leas Anderson have not really played with the Kings that much. A lot of their top prospects you just mentioned, Turcotte, Byfield, Arthur Callia, Brent Clark, uh, Akil Thomas, Samuel Fajimo, um, and I guess Jared Anderson Dolan was up in the NHL, but they're still waiting on quite a few of these top guys to actually make the NHL and help and look like they can be good players at that level. And I think you compare that to the Rangers, who have seen, you know, you know, Kako Lafreniere, Keandre kind of kind of graduate to New Jersey, who have, you know, Heesher and Hughes up already, uh, to Ottawa, who have Stutzel and, and Kachuk playing big roles on that team. Uh, Carolina has Netchis and Sveshnikov playing big roles. Ottawa, who has Darlene and, and Middlestad and Yokoharu up on, on the big team. They just don't have enough 
and it, that's kind of where we gone to before with the NHL versus the prospect. This is probably the prime example of, you know, it's very possible in a, we're talking a year from now and LA is one because whatever Byfield comes up next year looks like an, you know, looks, looks like a stud and you're like, oh yeah, like, you know, they're, they have this great prospect pool. He looks like a no doubt number one center of the future, uh, you know, pencil at the one spot. Uh, but they're not there yet. I think by this next season, now that they have so many prospects, I think if you're a Kings fan, realistically, uh, and I think, you know, completely reasonably, you're, you're hoping that this coming season, you're starting to see some dividends. Not all the dividends, but you want to start seeing, okay, enough prospects. Let, let's start seeing you like do something on the big club right now. And then if our uh, producer, Chris, will allow me to slide in one more, I would love to just pick your brain a little bit on New Jersey because they kind of have the construction that um, I think you kind of dream up. Two number one overall picks down the middle and Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes. Now you get Luke Hughes, a potential you know top pair defenseman. Ty Smith is kind of that already in the NHL, already making a difference, young defenseman. You've got a really – I mean, I don't know that he had the most amazing draft plus one year in Alexander Holtz, but, but a potential high-level scorer that you drafted. Dawson Mercer, another first-round pick. Is he a center or a wing at this point? I think we'll we'll kind of see as time plays out. But yeah, I think I think he's a center, but on that team, he might be a wing if he plays high in the lineup. Yeah, so to me, like, there's just a lot of if you were going to draw up a blueprint of what you wanted, kind of your under twenty three depth to look like, I think it would look a lot like New Jersey's. Right. I think the only thing is, other than maybe Ty Smith, as you mentioned, those those young guys who are in the NHL and Hughes and Heeshear. Uh, they've been good. They haven't been great though. Mm-hmm. And I think he sure maybe not. Maybe he won't ever be like a true star. He might just be like this really, really good, like top six forward, you know, great second line center, below average first line center type of player. But un- until I would say some of those other, you know, they're kind of in the same, like, it's almost like the kind of same little debate that we got into with the Rangers, but the Rangers, I think, have a little bit more depth there, you know, especially at the top, the top of their system where you, where you saw you know, how good Schneider, Lundqvist, Jones uh, were this season, where I think New Jersey is kind of like in that same mix. I think you could argue those, you know, those top six. You could kind of flip a lot of those names around. Maybe not every single one of them, but I think they were they were rather close for me. But yeah, New Jersey has you know a great mix of you know elite young talent. You know, I still think Jack Hughes is going to be a star. I think Luke Hughes and Ian Heischer and, and Holt have a ton of potential. Uh, but there's still you are another organization. You're going to want to see. How the next year or two goes for them, you know. When do the dividends really start to come through? Uh, you know, will Jack take another step? Does Mercer step in right away? What does Holt do next year? You know, when does Nolan Foot or Kevin Ball, you know, parts of of their selling efforts? When do they start seeing some dividends from them? How does Shakir McCamadulin do in the coming years? Uh, those are all open questions for them. Jack Hughes, my breakout uh, pick for the year of, of all NHL players. It would not shock me if he ends up on a couple of heart ballots uh, by the end of the season. Heart ballots would be, I think, high for me. On it, but, not winning it, but on it. I mean, the, you know, the top twenty finish kind of thing is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Jack. I think he's a, I think he's an elite talent. Um, I think he's going to be a true like star number one center in the National Hockey League. But I would say, from where he was last year to being a top five heart finish, would be. Not impossible, but it'd be quite a leap. Not finish. I mean, like top 20 finish. So like, okay, you know, every, 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 cause everyone's five kind of alternate. I was going to say, in order to get a top 20 finish, true. in some minds of some voters, you have to be top five. That's true. And I, okay. And, and, and let's, and let's be real. I, I, you know, I respect my colleagues, but there's a lot of Homer votes on there. Like, it's just like you, you look through the ballots and like there's a lot of Homer votes. So maybe some New Jersey people give him a top five if he has a really good year. 
That's fair. Okay, I'll I'll frame it this way. Then. I think he's going to have a seventy point year, and I think he's going to do it with decent defensive impact. I think that's an extremely valuable player. Yeah, and I think it's completely possible that he does that. And if he does that, and let's say he sure has a good year, maybe Ty Smith has another good year, maybe a Nolan Foot or Kevin Ball come up and help the team at some point. I think you're starting to get a little bit more optimistic about this team's future. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to touch on beyond the top six is just a few of the teams that have kind of made the biggest jump or stumble, I guess, over the course of the past year. Now, a lot of that is probably just going to be due to age and graduation. I mean, Toronto tumbles from four to 21 for a not that surprising reason. Austin Matthews got a year older, right? Um, but anything else kind of that, that you wanted to touch on? I mean, briefly looking through it, uh, the, the Kings climb, I think probably for understandable reasons, adding another top 10 pick. Uh, and just kind of the continued growth of their prospects from 13 to 5. Philly drops from 11 to 17. A couple of risers, Detroit 18 to 9. Columbus 19 to 13. Any of those systems you want to highlight and, and kind of explain why they were able to make the leap or fall that they did? Sure. Let's touch on Toronto first. Yeah, not because I think it's any notable. Again, the reason they dropped is the reason you just said one, mostly because, you know, Matthews got graduated and they had no draft picks in this last draft. But I would want to just point out the angst that we had internally when we decided to turn uh, this series into what it was. It used to be the standard prospect ranking series uh, with no age criteria but games played criteria. And we found that there is no perfect way to do it. It's been doing prospect rankings for over a decade. There's no criteria you can use that's perfect. You're going to be leaving somebody out that's going to uh, not per- perfect context onto the talent that an organization has. But we found that by putting it on an age criteria, it helped us capture more of the premium young talents in the game. So like say a Barrett Hayton wouldn't be considered a graduate for Arizona, uh, even though he's clearly a, an important prospect for that organization right now. Um, and many other examples that we've touched on in, in this podcast. But when we did that, I looked at it like, okay, let's do it. U23, five-year span. This is me, you know, five draft classes. This is going to be a, this is a great idea. Then we look like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, the number <laughs> one pick from 2016 is Austin Matthews. And that's going to put Toronto like, way at the top. Here come the Homer comments. Here comes And his athletic. birthday is September. So he was like only like barely even under 23 last year anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know if he actually was. He might have been 23 right if we published it to be quite because of the weird off season and stuff <laughs> like that. And um, oh my God, the, like from the readers and the Twitter and my, my, my people I know in the NHL, all the, all the damn like Homer comments, the athletic only cares about Toronto, something like that. It was, I knew it was coming. I was willing to, to embrace it, to make the change, but but very, I, I, I like Austin Law as a player. I'm just very happy he's considered a graduate now, so we don't have to deal with that crap anymore. <laughs> um, so that's the only thing I wanted to highlight from that front. Everything else you kind of mentioned there in terms of like the risers and fall or whatever, like Detroit, Philly, Columbus. Columbus, no surprise, right? Like they had a bunch of picks in this draft. Detroit gets nobody, yeah. I had Adam Bokvist, uh, you know, right. some, some guys took, you know, like a lot of these things are like, Sometimes it's like clear and obvious, and sometimes it's like a collection of things. Like for Detroit, it's yes, it's getting Simon Evanson and Sebastian Cosa. But then there's you know, there's guys from up and down, you know, maybe like Sedina hasn't taken a step, but you know, Berkman takes a step, Soderbloom takes a step, uh, some other prospects take you know, more cider takes some more steps. It's always it's never like one thing. It's always usually a combination of things, other than in the Toronto case where it very clearly was one thing. Uh <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, and then obviously you know, Philly, some guy, you know, some guys took positive steps like a Cam York, and you graduate Carter Hart and Wade Allison, and and so on and so forth. It's 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 always like a you know a, a very like a moving target, and uh, I hope that when people read it, they can see how close some systems are to another, and how some systems are clearly in a different tier from one another. One thing that stood out to me on Philly's Joel Farabee at the very top, it just got me wondering. I know you do the redrafts from time to time. I don't know if you have a 2018 one planned. We, 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 we are planning to do some more of these going forward. We, we would try to do those every fall, but last fall was just impossible. But we will do we will do some more of those going forward. Would you humor me on a two to three pick range for where Joel Farabee goes in a redraft right now? I mean, you're, you're talking top five. Yeah. You're talking about, yeah. like, I think once you, you know, once you could see it would go, you know, I mean, I, and I'm not like, giving anything away. You could just kind of go through my, um, the, the pieces I just did. And, uh, you know, it's right there. The tiers are there. They're, they're t- the tiers cross over from organization to organization. I think once Feshnikov, Darlene, uh, Hughes, and Kachuk are gone, I think they've distinguished themselves right now as like the top of, of that class. Then I think Joel Farabee's. He's he's right in the next he's right he's the next name up, or if not he he's very close to the next name up. All right, all right. Uh, anything else on the organizational rankings before uh, we take a break and then I drag you into the mailbag? No, just I appreciate everybody who uh, commented and, and read it and, and read it and, and subscribed for it uh, this week. We we see the numbers, we we see the passion for it, and like I said before, I, I'm sorry if. Somebody has, you know, DM'd me, emailed me, put a comment in one of the articles, and I haven't gotten back to you. Um, it's, it's just a lot to deal with all in, in one week. Uh, we will do, you know, well, there will be different ways for me to have access to the readers throughout the course of the coming season. And I hope if you have any lingering questions, we can still address it then. All right, we're going to go now into the mailbag. And really, the perk of hosting this podcast is that if I forget to follow up something that I should have followed up on earlier, I get to just stick it at the front of the mailbag. And that's what I'm going to do right now. Um, if if uh, Carolina gets the Spiricot Kaniemi, how does that affect their organizational rank and Montreal's organizational ranking? Yeah, I mean, we're going to change that uh, if, if it happens. We presume they would match just because historically offer sheets are always matched, even though this one is more dicey. Uh, if Kaniemi leaves Montreal, they would move down one spot from the 11 to 12, swapping with Dallas. We actually, coincidentally, for whatever reason, thought there was actually a little bit of a drop-off after Dallas. So the fact that they would lose a guy like Kakaniami does not really alter their ranking too much. And then, in and because you know, the higher you get in these ranking systems, the uh, less one player really will make a difference. It's more about the collective whole. So... By getting Kakaniemi, Carolina would move up one spot from three to two. Um, so it would be a little bit, you know, some movement, but a very minimal movement. And it wouldn't change what I would think would be the ultimate um, you know, pictures for either of those organizations going forward, uh, you know, as opposed to if like a Pittsburgh or the Islanders got Kakaniemi, I think that would change their outlook quite significantly. Okay. All right. The rest of the mailbag today is uh, was kind of dominated by two specific fan bases, Wild fans and Red Wings fans. Red Wings fans, because I put the call out and that's what a lot of my followers are. Wild fans, because the legendary Mike Russo uh, bumped the call out. And so we got into the Minnesota market. So if you're listening and you're wondering 
why are none of these questions about my team? I think you should go bug your beat writer and ask them, why are you not uh, pumping the Athletic Hockey Show prospect series so I can get my questions answered by Corey about my team? That's what I think you should do. And in that spirit, we're going to start with a wild question. Actually, I said there were a lot of wild questions. There was really just a lot of different people asking one wild question, and that really revolved around Marco Rossi. And, and I, sure. I think you had him at number four in the ranking. That's behind uh, Kalen Addison, Matt Boldy. So Austin Peden, Jesper Walstead also behind him. Austin Peden asks, why are you low on Rossi in comparison to Addison and Boldy? So my job is not just to do a pure talent evaluation. My, you know, these rankings are meant to reflect almost like trade values in some instances. It's not what I'm actually trying to do, but you know, what I send around uh, my list of teams before they, before it gets published, you know, the, you know, the often the argument would come back about, you know, well, if there was a trade right now, I wouldn't do X for Y if they were like in the same slot. You know, that's typically a lot of what the arguments will come to because it's, you know, in a, in a vacuum type of rankings. And, you know, given that Rossi was the ninth overall pick a couple of years ago, um, you know, and that's right around where I had him rated. I didn't have him rated like top three, top five going into the, I had him rated around eight or nine, I think my, on my overall list. And then he misses an entire year due to a very scary, you know, COVID-19 complication. That's risk. Like it just is. And it's not meant to be like mean or like insensitive to his health condition. But if he was on the open market right now, he would go for less than he went for a year ago. And it's just the the teams accepting the risks and the reality of what the player unfortunately just went through for the last 12 months. Now, if he comes back 100% healthy, condition looks good, has an amazing year, then he'll jump back up. You know, he, maybe he'll go back to nine on my list. Maybe he'll go even higher. You know, I had some concerns on the player. Like I love the skill, the hockey sense, the competitiveness, skating for the size, still a little bit of a concern. Thought so when I was watching Olympic qualifiers too, to be quite honest. Uh, but in general, no, if he has a great year, whether it's in Iowa or, or in Minnesota, then you know his his value will go back up. But where he is at this point in time, September 2021, you have to incorporate the fact that he just missed an entire year due to a very unique and scary medical condition. Because you mentioned the skating, I'm going to kind of do a follow-up from another one of the Wild fans who was asking about him. His question was from Walter Norris. I always thought Rossi's skating was similar to a high percentage similar to Crosby's, whose skating hasn't ever been skewered much. How wrong am I? Um, I, I kind of get what he's getting at, although the frames are a little bit different. And Crosby's, yeah, Crosby 5'11". Yeah, thick 5'11". Yeah. And like, he's also not just like pretty skilled. It's exceptional skill in hockey sense. Like It's just... Different physical frames. And now if Rossi works and you could say, hey, it worked. But like, and you know, it wasn't an issue for them. But I mean, that was the debate for them going to the draft. It's why despite his insane scoring, incredible skill, high compete, great character, it's why he went ninth overall. People were scared by the skating for the size. Same thing with Cole Perfetti. Um, and, you know, whether they were right or wrong, time will tell. But that's kind of, you know, th- those are those are the risk factors in him. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, and, you know, part of why he's rated fourth is the risk factors. Part of it is I really like Jesper Wallstedt, who they got 20th overall. I thought Kalen Addison looked really impressive versus men to build off his great junior career. He was like a really dynamic offensive defenseman. And, and Matthew Boldy was excellent as a pro and in college as well. I think those are four really important players for their future, but, but Marco just has the most risk attached to him right now. At least in me as an individual trying to project his future. All right, moving on to the next one. This one is from uh, Joe D113. It's about the Red Wings. He wants to know why you have Michael Rasmussen ahead of Philip Zadina. I think you had him in the same yeah. tier, middle middle lineup player. Yeah, I think I'm going to put out a full list at some point 
where it's like all these players, all the teams under 23, best under 23 players, all ranked up against each other. Uh, that should go sometime next week. And I forgot exactly where they were. I oh yeah, yep, no, they are actually on the on the list. They are actually back to back. This is among the entire league. So, uh, so fair to say, I don't think it's unreasonable to have one over the other if if it's the margin is that small. I would say, I think I'm guessing your reader is less asking about the minutia of why one's right over the other, and he probably thinks Zadina should definitely be ahead of Rasmussen. Um, and I do like Philip Zadina a lot. I think he's going to be, a, you know, a very, you know, a good NHL player. I think it's fair to say from his last three years, his stock is down from when he was drafted. It's not extremely down, but it is down. You know, you're not talking about a guy who's coming to the NHL and his American League years and just, you know, left no doubt and, you know, just, just scored at will kind of thing. I think he's had his ups and downs. I still think he has a tremendous individual skill. I think, you know, you know, he's got some playmaking ability. He can score. Skating is good, not great. Uh, could be a little perimeter still at times, but I think he's trying to work at that. Uh, he's a good player, but I think Rasmussen's a good player too in a different way. He's not going to have the power play dynamic skill assets that, that, that Zadina has, but because he is a big center who I think will be an NHL center uh, that has some offense that has, you know, good, you know, is very good around the net. Uh, good off the, you know, good enough off the puck. I think that has value. I think Rasmussen on a decent team is a third line center. I think Zadina is probably a middle six winger. If you disagree with that, if you think he's going to be like a really good top six four, then yeah, then you put him above Rasmussen. That's kind of where I stand, and I would take lean to the third line center. And third line center is not enough. I think third line centers are very valuable. I think if you put a third line center and a second line winger on the open market, a lot of GMs would lean to the third line center. What does Philip Zadina have to do scoring wise, like production wise, in your mind to kind of be be more valuable than that third? I mean, Rasmussen's probably going to play on both special teams for a very long period of time for the Red Wings here, so I can definitely see the value. Like he might be a three C who manages to still play like seventeen minutes a night because he's on uh, one of the two penalty kills and one of the two power plays. So I I can understand that. I do think I like Zadina's playmaking maybe a little more than you do, and, and no, that maybe I, I think I think his playmaking is a big strength. I think for me when I watch Zadina. At least the last two years in, in Detroit, you've watched every Detroit game. Yeah. You know, for me, like his shot has not been the threat I thought it would be. I agree it, with that. Like it has not been bad, but like when you're talking about like a true sniper, when you saw him in junior, for example, like he hasn't shown that that element isn't. It's not that it's not there. But it's not that it can be consistent. That you know, if you put him on the power play on the dots, that he's a threat to score from there. Like some of the more you know, better goal scorers are in the National Hockey League. And I think if he shows that more consistently, as long as continuing to improve on, you know, generating offense around the middle of the ice, I think that's where his struggle is. Sometimes he was trying to generate too much from the outside. Now he's trying to, now there's no exterior offense and he's, and, you know, maybe he's kind of caught in the middle there a little bit. Uh, but I, I still think he's a good player, but I, until he kind of shows that he has kind of everything to be a good top six forward and does that consistently, it's kind of hard for me to stamp him. As that, and you know, the the environment around him might be a contributor to that. You know, he doesn't, you know, he gets a lot of more ice time because he's on a good team, but he, you know, he doesn't really, you know, the lack of skill around him could be a variable. But that's kind of just what I've seen from watching him in the last two years. Yeah, and I think I'd point specifically to the one timer along those lines with the shot. Like that's the the shot that I expected to kind of you know be the the thing that gets him early on, especially those power play looks. Those are the ones where you have the inherent time and space to score. 
the one-timer has not at all been a difference maker for him in the NHL yet. Maybe he gets there, but I still think he's got a great wrist shot. He can change the angle a little bit, but um, yeah, I think the one-timer is a, a huge area for, for Zadina to, to improve on going forward. Yep. No, I agree. Next question is going to be from uh, Philip Sadina, which, uh, oh, I guess <laughs> he's got two. All right. It's a fake name, obviously. Uh, how many prospects are realistically fighting for the number two spot behind Shane Wright in the 2022 draft? Yeah, not just my opinion. I would say it's both my opinion and the opinion of almost every NHL scout I've talked to um, after the Holinka Gretzky has ended and after Canada's U18 camp has ended is that it's really wide open. That I that the sec it's almost it's like it's a really big tier of guys after right and some people will have different players in there or not maybe you have like the two Russian wingers Daniela Yurov Ivan Mirosichenko some might have one or both of the Slovakians Yurovskovsky Simon Nemec uh, some might have both of the Winnipeg centers Matthew Savoy Connor Geeky uh, from Candace Camp I kept hearing Savoy I played Geeky there but I also didn't hear like, Savoy was like, a no doubt. Like people walked out of there saying he's a no doubt top three, top five guy. I don't even ask questions about it. Uh, I still think there's some questions about him. Just like almost all, all those other guys I mentioned, uh, you know, some people really like the Nathan Gaucher kid in Quebec. Some people really like uh, the David, David Yerichek guy in the Czech Republic. You have Logan Cooley with the program, Brad Lambert in Finland. Uh, there's a lot of these guys. I'm probably left out one or two that are all in some scouts next top tier in some order. And we're, we're really going to need, you know, I think, you know, at least the first half of the year to really sort out where all these guys fit in an overall list. Uh, I will do my next list um, probably in about a month or so once we kind of get a little bit into the start of the CHL seasons and, you know, start of the USHL seasons. Uh, I'll, I'll try and put together a, a really a, a new early list and then probably won't have another one ready till January because I do think, and that's my timing regardless, but I think it's going to, I have a lot of uncertainty on how this draft looks right now, too. All right. Next one is from Jeff Brown. Outside of Michigan, for obvious reasons, which college squad or players are you the most excited to watch this season? No, that's a great question because I think we're all going to be you know, really focused on Michigan for, <laughs> for obvious reasons where you have you know, four top five picks you know, playing on the same team to go with some of the other first round picks are there are guys like say Thomas Bordalo, who wasn't a first round pick, but arguably would go in the first round if you redid that draft right now. Uh, for me, I'm really interested in see the ECAC because I thought that that conference was, you know, you know, it, it was basically just St. Lawrence, Clarkson, Quinnipiac playing over and over again last year. You didn't have the Ivy leagues. So we have a word, you know, I want to see how Sean Farrell does. In college, you know, you know, he was amazing in junior last year. I want to see how he does when he actually goes to college hockey. I want to see if Nick Abrazizi can build off his year he had uh, the, the prior season. And there's a bunch of other guys in the Ivy Leagues who we just don't really know much about or know how they would have done in, the, in that environment last season. That I hope we're going to get some some more answers to those questions in the coming seasons. And yeah, you know, there's there's interesting teams, you know, across across the country in the NCHC Hockey East. Um, big, big Ten, et cetera, the, the names the names you expect. But for me, that's the most interesting you know, conference to, and, and group of teams to follow after Michigan is what do the ECAC kids look like this coming season. All right. And then Jack Pulley says, when evaluating prospects, how do you compare the North American leagues, USHL, CHL, uh, compared to the Russian leagues, MHL, VHL, KHL? I think he Jack seems to think that the Russian prospects are being devalued in, in some of the rankings. Um, everything is contextual 
And it's why I think it's really important. And it's why we didn't, was something we did not get this past season is to see these guys in different contexts. What does that mean? Uh, so typically that is when you see them at their club team and then at the international level, it helps you kind of put into the proper context. Where does this player really fit? And, you know, you, you watch a club, let's say North American league, let's say like the USHL. You will watch a North American USHL games and you'll get an idea of oh, which conference is the better conference, which teams are the better teams in those conferences, how do these players fit within their, these either good teams or these poor teams, um, what, you know, how you contextualize their numbers. Uh, all of those things are important. Um, I think it's easier to do in North American leagues than it is in the foreign leagues, particularly the Russian leagues, but this applies um, to, to Finland and Sweden too, who, like Russia, have tiers of pro leagues and a junior league. And those junior leagues can have differences in quality across their conferences too. You know, you watch like the MHL in Russia, for example, where, you know, uh, you know, where the Red Army CSKA's junior team is, where SKA has their junior team, where Dynamo Moscow has their junior team. Um, and, you know, Slavol has their junior team. And those are often like the best teams in the MHL in a given year. And then you kind of have Avangard on the other side or Chelyabinsk on the other side and, and, and not a whole lot after that. And I think the differences in quality between those two conferences can be massive sometimes. Now there's like sometimes where I think the, I think the, the, the China, China's, uh, the China KHL teams, uh, Red Stars junior team plays in the West, I think, and they would be just terrible. But otherwise, just from my observation and most scouts' observations, they know that, that the Western and the Eastern conferences at the KHL level to the lesser extent, definitely the VHL and especially at the junior level can be rather stark. And I think it, it, whenever you're watching hockey, whatever league it is, whether it's European or, or North American, understanding the league quality, understanding the context of what you're watching is very important because you can watch a given game and think some guy looks highly skilled and then he goes play against better opponents and the skill disappears. And that happens so often when watching hockey at various levels. Um, and I think that just takes experience to understand, you know, what you're, what, whether what you're watching is real or, or, uh, or maybe a little bit of a mirage. All right, that is going to do it for us today. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Athletic Hockey Show and specifically on the Prospect Series. Please follow The Athletic Hockey Show on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a rating and review if you're enjoying the show. That really helps us out. Right now, annual subscriptions to The Athletic are 50% off when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Make sure you get on that before the season gets going. Probably going to be one of the better times to join. We'll talk to you next week.